0: Before this episode of the Funnel Word podcast, a quick thank you to the Funnel Word sponsor, Brick Lane Brewing. Do me a favor. Before this episode begins, before the fabulous final word theme thanks to Earthboy, head to Sidewinder Life on Instagram. That's Sidewinder Life. It's the latest from Brick Lane Brewing. Sidewinder Hazy Pale Ale. Super tasty and Brick Lane's first low alcohol beer. Get this, the IWSR. What is the IWSR, you ask? Well, I didn't know either, so I Googled them. They provide stats for the drinks market. They're the beverage industry scorekeeper. Anyway, their research found that 65% of Australians, 65% of legal drinking age Australians, are looking for a low or no alcohol option in 2021. Find it at Dan Murphy's in Australia. Tell them the final word sent you. The folks at Dan Murphy's won't really know what that means, unless, of course, they listen to this podcast, but Brick Lane will. And that's all that matters. Also, keep your eyes open for new Brick Lane Final Word artwork. The team at Brick Lane has taken the classic Final Word image and given it a Brick Lane makeover. You're going to love it. Remember, you can find everything Final Word related at FinalWordCricket.com. Brick Lane Brewing, based and brewed in Melbourne, Australia. Great city, great beer. Thank you, Brick Lane Brewing, for being part of the Final Word, and thank you for listening. That's enough from me. Now, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. And the final word. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you.
1: Away from Tigerland. A fighting fury, we're from Tigerland. In any weather, you will see us with a grin. Risking head and skin. If we're behind, then never mind, we'll fight and fight and win.
2: Siren's gone, like the tiger of old, we're strong and we're bold, away from time.
1: We are from Tigerland, the Bangladesh Tigers, that is. This is The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, a cricket podcast on which we talk about cricket, primarily first up, Bangladesh, 4-1 over Australia, nearly had the whitewash, but Australia is invincible in the fourth (laughs) rubber of T20 International Series. That is where they flourish. That is where they are Vikings. Also on the show today, we're talking to Jeff Ellardyce, the boss of the ICC, about cricket going to the Olympics. It's going to happen if it gets let in. Like, they're actually committed to attempting to make this happen now. That is happening. And also, later on the show today... I'm talking to John Doyle, who some of you may know better as Rampaging Roy Slaven. I had a chat to John a week or two ago about his new book, and it wasn't specifically a final word interview, but it was a really interesting interview, and he's a great conversationalist. And so we thought people who listen to this show would enjoy that. The book is Heavily about cricket in a whole lot of ways And uh, so why not get that involved as well So uh, bits and pieces all over the place We're looking at England, India and that test series as well The test that didn't finish at Nottingham And uh, I think that's about it on the show today Aside from some Nerd Pledge and other bits and pieces
2: Uh, Nice long intro, Jeff. I like it Yeah, the... uh... I've interviewed a number of Bangladesh cricketers over the years, and obviously done a lot of press conferences with them. And I always try and get a question in there about their chronic mistreatment by Australian administrators over generations. And they're always too classy to swing at the pitch. But they always kind of give an answer that's fairly diplomatic, knowing that in the longer term they want to have a better relationship with with uh, with Australian administrators, yeah. I suppose. And, they, and they, they you know they don't rise to it. Privately, however, players have acknowledged to me in the past that they do get especially fired up when playing Australia and they stuck it right mm-hmm. up. I'm not this particular group, I'm, at their reflection on this group of Australian players who I'm sure you know did the best they could and we'll talk about the structural failings, I suppose, of Australia's T20 setup up in a moment. But it feels good from a Bundesliga perspective that they get their opportunity mm-hmm. against Australia as infrequently as they come and they take full advantage just as they did at Dhaka in that first test in 2017. They were able to thrash Australia and and that's a... Mm -hmm. Another pointer towards uh, why they should have been treated better by Australian administrators over their 22-year journey as a full member nation of the ICC. Uh,
1: Well, if we have a, a little scan through what happened in that series, Australia bowled out for 108, seven for 121, Four for one seventeen, seven for one oh five. That's the one they won and bowled out four sixty two. Uh, that after losing four one in the Caribbean, only you know days before this this series began. All of the the reasons we've heard about the top line players missing, the difficulty of getting yourself together in COVID times and bubbles and isolation and all the rest of it. But it's a pretty thorough thrashing across the board for what's supposed to be. The second rank of Australian players We've heard a lot about bench depth Over the last year or so Particularly with what India managed to do When they were in Australia And also the fact that England managed to turn out An entire reserve One day international side Which beat Pakistan in a series there Australia's bench depth Doesn't look so hot
2: Yeah, not much to speak of is it And it's a World Cup year Remember they were building to a World Cup That was meant to be last October Yeah sure, that was going to be at home Different circumstances Yes there are players missing, yes, we're at the end of a long run of bubbles and so on that a number Mm. of those players have been involved in. So there are mitigating factors, but as Dan Bredig has written in a sort of comprehensive piece for the newspaper today, this really is part of a two-year decline. It's hard to point to many positives in the last couple of years with Mm. the exception of one-day international cricket, which isn't really... On Broadway for the majority of full member nations, because oh, despite the fact mm. that it is the, the one-day Super League now, it's not you know they're in T20 mode. Principally, if you're focusing on one format or yep. the other, it tends to be T20. So it's not at all surprising that they would have done better in one-day cricket, given there's been this malaise taking place. So yeah, captains nearing the end of their run in, in Aaron Finch and Tim Payne, not the complete mm-hmm. end, but you know closer to the end than the start in both cases in terms of white ball, red ball. You know the shift in emphasis from the centre of excellence in Australia eight tours, more to a state-based program, I mean, players being batted out of position, the way that even using as a test case Matthew Wade, going Mm. from batting in the middle order, because he was going to specialise there for the World Cup, and then he's at the top of the order by the end. Of course, Dan Christian got thrown around from from middle to the top as well. Mitchell Marsh, who perhaps could have a claim to be Australia's best finisher at the Mm Scorchers, now he's just another contender for a top three berth. So is that a good thing or a bad thing? Sure, it's a good thing that Mitchell Marsh is making runs and contributed, but it doesn't necessarily solve any problems Mm. with the big tournament uh, they've got in the UAE in a couple of months. Their first World Cup in this format for five years, and they still, frankly, are a long way from having it right, even when you consider where their frontliners might fit even when you consider where a player like Marnus Labuschagne might fit into the mix, as talented as he is. But, yeah, this is, um, this is a, a pretty rough way to end what's been a fairly brutal tour, all told, especially in T20 cricket.
1: And I think Marnus is uh, an indicator of the kind of backwards way that Australia looks at the way they select cricket teams, which is that, you know, Marnus is uh, currently on the favourites list, therefore has to be in contention for a T20 World Cup spot, despite having done very little in the format to, to speak of. And then, look as as to who's coming in next. Yeah, as you say, there's uh, where Australia lacks is is a five or six or seven. You know, that's where they're not sure about who should go there. They don't need another three. If you've got Warner, Finch, Smith, Maxwell, there's mm. your top four sorted. None of whom were playing. I thought it was very interesting that these squads. You know, with with the absences, with Finch going home injured, there were no specialist batters in the squad by the end of. That Bangladesh to it. It was a lineup made up entirely of wicket keepers and all rounders <laughs> who had to do their best with the situation they were in. Uh, popping Dan Christian up to open in one game. Look, that made sense to me. That's it's it's the kind of approach that Aaron Finch took in 2016. You might remember this: the the white ball, the 50 over and 20 over series in Sri Lanka, where they were playing on a lot of very turning surfaces, and basically Finch figured that the easiest time to score was against the new ball and so he just went as hard as possible off the top. You know, he, he might be making 50 off 20 balls off the top. The team would be then grinding their way to 220, 230, 240, but because it was so hard to score later, he decided to take advantage of conditions at the beginning. So I think that's what they were trying to do with Dan Christian. He got out cheaply, that can happen in the T20. He only had one shot at it. You know, I didn't mm. think that was necessarily a bad move. But with Wade being a captain, he wants to open. That you know, honestly, when he was captaining, he captained that one-off game in Australia over the summer he immediately popped himself back up to open because that was his prerogative as the captain. That's where he's done his best work as a T20 player. So he's tried to do the middle order thing as the team thing, but he doesn't really want to bat there. That's not where he feels like he does his best work.
2: Yeah, it's interesting stepping back from this and thinking about the five-year cycle that's been. I think in the lead-up to the 2016 World Cup, there was a sense that Australia don't play an awful lot of T20 international cricket. Often it's one game or two games Tacked on mm. the back of a one-day tour It's usually kind of the 50-over squad With maybe, you know, a, 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 a bow on top Like I remember Cameron Boyce played that one game Didn't he, for example Emblematic yeah. of, emblematic of um, you know a, a player or two maybe getting oh. drafted in But it was principally the one-day squad With a couple of tweaks And that was a pretty fair critique And they never really looked like They were going to progress in that competition I think from memory mm. They were bundled out in, in the group stage Maybe the quarterfinals Whatever it was they, they didn't look like they were Ever really going to threaten The big couple of teams So, and we look forward to now. I actually don't think it's the same anymore. I reckon they have prioritised a lot of T20 international cricket in this mm-hmm. cycle, especially when they thought the World Cup was going to be in Australia. A number of tri-series that they've played around the world, they've always balanced out their one day as with T20s. So it's a different kind of problem now in that yeah. they've played so much cricket in this form, a far more mature domestic T20 cop than they would have had five years ago as well, yet there's still these sort of structural shortcomings where... In other parts of the world, they've got very specialised T20 teams. And again, this is a point that Dan mm. Breed makes in his piece, In the Age. This Australian team seems to suffer from not having those specialist positions sewn up at this pointy end of the cycle. Remember when England were hosting the World Cup in mm. 50 over cricket uh, in 2019, they had their yep. lineup really, very well set. 18, 12 to 18 months before the World Cup there was enough room to make an mm. addition like Jofra Archer uh, but they weren't making structural changes to their top six top seven and that's effectively yep. what Australia's going to have to do now and, and you could say and I heard Matthew Wade kind of suggest that, well, look, the, the pitches in Bangladesh won't be that similar to what they get in the UAE. That might be the case in the first week of the tournament. But as we get deeper and deeper, playing on the same grounds every single day, lots of cricket, they will have wear and tear. They will spin yeah. a lot. They, they, it'll be like 2016 where low scores will occasionally prevail, unless yeah. unless you're playing at Sharjah, I suppose, with the short boundaries. I'd imagine that Dubai and Abu Dhabi won't be a million miles away from what Duck has been in the last week as we get into the tournament.
1: I don't think they'll be as Extreme mm. in that we've seen a couple of IPL editions get staged in the UAE. We've seen qualifying tournaments and so on where there's heavy traffic on a limited number of strips, and the ground staff at those grounds are good enough at getting getting a pitch usable. So sure, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Th- th- they they will be slower, but I mean, I I think, and a bit like what we saw in 2016 was that on some grounds a 120 to 130 score was possibly defendable. I mean, in Bangladesh, a 90-100 score was defendable over the series that we've just seen. So I, I think it's a more extreme version and maybe that's more where he's where he's getting at, um, saying that it's not going to be that bad. But, I mean, I wonder whether Matthew Wade's battered himself out of a spot in that squad. I, I wonder whether Moe Enriquez has as well. And, and I hate to say that because, you know, he's a a player I have a lot of affection for, but he's he's had a lot of opportunities now. He's been in the side over these last 10 matches. He's had chance after chance to stamp an impression on a game and he hasn't really done it. Dan Christian's done it a little bit from a, a couple of opportunities and he is playing that higher risk sort of role and he has come off twice in the last 10 games and maybe that's enough for your, your sort of late innings yep. finisher to, to come off that often, but... That next rank down, you know, I, I just wonder if some of those players have played themselves out of a spot over the last couple of series.
2: Yeah, well, I think it speaks to the fact that I don't know what they're doing exactly, that it would be difficult to name what Australia's top seven would be for that first World Cup game. You could take a stab, mm. but I don't think you could say it with any true authority. There, there are a lot of questions to answer. And look, maybe they'll fit in another T20 tour. This was a question that was doing the rounds a couple of days ago. Will Australia find yeah. time for another warm-up before they go to the UAE. And maybe they will. and uh, Maybe they will. And maybe they'll get it right. The best team will be there and, and, they'll, and they'll find form at the right time as they did before the 2019-50 over World Cup, which really came together late. So, you know, time isn't mm. on their side necessarily, but we're not completely... You know, it's not the eve of the tournament either. And big names yeah. do come back, sure. But nevertheless, it does feel as though it's, it's five minutes to midnight. And this Australian team, as someone joked uh, on Twitter to me, Andrew54, uh, Andrew Locock, one of our subscribers actually, uh, when we were talking about the Olympic Games on Twitter earlier today, and we'll, we'll go into this in a bit more depth with Jeff Allardyce in a sec, but there'll be eight teams qualifying for the men's tournament and women's tournament at the mm. 2028 Olympics, provided that goes the way the ICC are pitching. And he said, well, at least the men's team won't have to worry about going over there. They may not be in the top eight <laughs> T20 teams in the world. And uh, the fact that it's funny, this is, I suppose, is a kernel of truth to
1: that. Mm. Well, if, but it's also been a long-standing thing. You know, Australia has comparatively, like relatively, relative to its strengths um, and its financial health and all the rest of it has underperformed in T20 cricket forever. They made the T20 World Cup final in 2010, was it, against England? And, you know, that was about as close as they got. I think it was the 2014 tournament when, because, you know, you were talking about specialised Uh, players for roles they've tried that they tried that in 14 they basically picked the big bash all-stars team to go and play with the players who had been performing in that format you know brad hogg and brad hodge and so on that didn't work you know that fell flat their 2016 team fell flat so when they've gone with the sort of test and 50 over players who are the cream of the crop players it hasn't worked when they've gone with the t20 specialists it hasn't worked I don't think anyone can put a finger on why that hasn't worked over the long term. So I think it's it's pretty easy to get into the uh, stuck into the current administration. But what has happened previously over the you know the ten years before that after. You know, the first few years Australia clearly didn't take it seriously when Ricky Ponting was in charge. T Twenty cricket didn't matter, but after that, you know, what's what's gone on in the last decade that they haven't really been able to put up a competitive team most of the time. Yeah,
2: and especially and coming back to this point that they were building towards something special potentially, Uh, or so they thought anyway. Mm -hmm. Winning the winning the World Cup uh, for the first time in this format, of course, that's gone away, and maybe they'll get that chance next year, but they look a million miles off the pace uh, at the moment. Mm. Yeah, I I suppose the other question is where will this Bangladesh tour sit? I mean they've been thrashed 4-1 It's a comprehensive defeat mm-hmm. It wasn't on television yeah. It was off-broadway You can already see You know down the track If Australia I mean we, we joked about this The other week If Australia win the Ashes 5-0 And look they probably will You know they probably Will win <laughs> the Ashes heavily anyway I, I, I don't see a scenario Where England's batting Holds up for, through Enough test cricket to, to seriously contend In in that series Will they just reflexively control C, control V Mm. and, and, you know, renew contracts left, right and centre? Probably, uh, because when you boil it down, what does Australian cricket care about? It cares cares about winning the Ashes, perhaps a lot more than it does in in the shortest form. And a lot of people would be fine with that, and I respect that point of view. But it doesn't mean that building into a World Cup, that it doesn't require scrutiny, even with all the caveats we've we've outlined about player availability and the difference in conditions in Bangladesh Mm. to what they're used to in T20 cricket around the world.
1: Yeah, I I was going to ask you actually whether you think that a, a series loss like this, is this the sort of series loss that only sports writers care about? You know, the, it's the sort of, the brettig churney measurement. Uh, Dan Brettig and Daniel Churney are annoyed about it, but is anyone else? Like, has anyone um, noticed? It, has, it hasn't been oh, screened. I, I, no one's I, been yeah. able to see it.
2: I, I see the point. I, look, I, t- I take your point that it is, is—it is because of the lack of visibility, there's perhaps a lack mm. of, but I tell you what, I mean, when Australia were getting bowled out for 62 yesterday, plenty of people knew about it. This is an unusual mm. thing to happen in T20 cricket full stop. But even more more unusual to happen to the national team in the lead-up to a World Cup, even more unusual to happen against Bangladesh, a country who Australia don't play an awful lot against, even in those sorts of conditions. So, it, look, if Australia had have won 3-2 or 4-1 and it had have been a fairly uh, unremarkable series, then maybe that would be the case. But, no, I, I, I do think this has a bit of currency. And, yeah, mm-hmm. putting to one side all, all the broadcast politics of whether it should have been on somewhere. And I think when we left it last week, there was a suggestion... That it was going to be on youtube but of course that was never going to be the case why was the bangladesh cricket board and their and their subsidiaries going to allow this to be on tv for free on youtube you know that that made no sense whatsoever i don't know how that story got written to begin with Mm. but yeah so yes it's middle of footy season yes the olympics were on and all of these other points but yeah i reckon people won't forget uh, that the australian team at this particular juncture got done for one by bangladesh and you know, a word for the Bangladeshis as well. They didn't make loads of runs. The Australian bowlers mm. did a good job. I mean, Nathan Ellis's hat-trick on debut uh, stands out. But across the board, they kept Bangladesh to fairly modest tallies. It was their exceptional spin bowling group who, at home, are uh, so difficult to play, especially, and who honed their skills at that ground, that, that practice facility, at the back there at the National Stadium, night after night after night. And deep into the evening, uh, they continued to work as hard as they can, and, and they got the rewards here.
1: Yeah, aside from the five balls when Dan Christian popped Shakib over the fence <laughs> five times in in an over, um, which was uh, it, the, pretty much the one bit of vision from the series that I did get to watch, which was <laughs> it, it was an enjoyable time. I will I will say that it has been nice seeing uh, the other DC get the, some <laughs> some late rewards. He, you know, they, I hope he gets to go on to the T Twenty World Cup. I think he will because I think they'll I think they'll look at him as that seven. You know, he's that's that's the spot that's been hardest for Australia to find someone for. And he's the kind of player who might be able to pull that off and who's played enough IPL to, to slot right in there. But, um, yeah, the Olympics, even, even a curmudgeon like me I had to admit that the Olympics were pretty good. Um, I was amazed that it, that we got through it. Like I just, I thought it would be covided off two days in. It's a miracle that they got through it, but having done it, it was, you know, it made you feel pretty good watching the Olympics, but, um, it would it would make you feel better if there were cricket in there. Wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah,
2: I'm kind of lost without it at the moment. Look, I love the Olympics. I'm an olympophile. You know, will be forever. And, and I get that. You know, not everyone feels that way about the Olympic Games these days, and that's fine. But it's kind of my my jam, and I've I've had a great time over the last two and a half weeks. And sad that it's over. But yeah, sort of thrilled that the conversation has been picked up in our little corner of the world. And let's leave it there as far as we're concerned for now, and and pick up that conversation that we had earlier today with the acting chief executive of the ICC, Jeff Allardyce. It's the final word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemmon, and we're thrilled to have with us the acting CEO of the International Cricket Council, Jeff Allardyce, to talk about a very positive story. That being uh, the ICC had formally announced today a bid for the Olympic Games in 2028 and subsequently 2032. Welcome, Jeff. Uh, Last year, the ICC announced a working group to be chaired by Ian Watmore who's the boss of the ECB which symbolised a big step forward but today you've gone an extra step too by really putting your cards down and saying that you want to be there in LA in 2028.
3: Yeah that, that's right and good to be with you both. It's um, yeah, a very positive announcement today. We had our first first meeting of our, of our Olympic working group that you referred to a couple of days ago and we've got the you know the cricketing nations all behind it, so it's yeah it's full steam ahead from here. And and you know, I thought we thought that uh, given the given the conclusion of the Tokyo Games and and being able to get the, the games through under under extremely difficult circumstances and, and well done to everyone involved. But you know so now that we're looking ahead, uh, it was a chance. It was a good time to to declare our intentions moving forward. And
2: what you really need here is Los Angeles to say cricket's in. And there's been. Work going on behind the scenes on this for a couple of years, hasn't there?
3: Yes, both at, uh, at, at the, with the IOC for, for many years, and, and um, also initial initial contact with the you know the, the organising committee for LA twenty twenty eight. So we'd need to be proposed as a as, as an additional sport by the local organising committee, and yeah, but the IOC certainly their executive and you know those uh, the, the, their decision makers are well and well aware of cricket's uh, interest over a long period of time and also what uh, what it could bring to the Olympic movement.
1: Jeff, it's been talked about for so long as one of those good ideas that never came to pass it's like building the train to the airport in melbourne or you know they should check penalties on the on a video ref or whatever it might be it's finally actually happening it's not being talked about it's actually been announced do you does it feel like a you know are you breathing a a big sigh of relief or or sort of some sort of feeling of accomplishment that finally it's been publicly committed to
3: Excitement, I think, more than anything, it really is about having all of all of our countries um, pulling in the same direction on on this issue. And you know, I, I think over over time, different different members of ours have had uh, you know have had different views on, on involvement. Right now, where you know we've got everyone uh, fully on board. I think it's worth addressing the fact that
2: like Olympic purists, olympophiles don't really like the idea of sports like cricket being in the frame. They, they they point at tennis or golf, and there are other examples there. But from cricket's perspective, I suppose now the damn wall has been busted down with tennis in 1988 and beyond, that why should we as a sport miss out on that and not just the teams who might participate it's been reported that it'll be eight teams in there but it's not just about the eight teams it's about the potential funding from national olympic committees for all sorts of countries who are outside
3: of the commonwealth take brazil for example yeah that's right it's the it's the impact that that olympic involvement will have at at, you know national level in so many of our member countries it's it's uh, it's the lead up to it it's the qualification it's the you know it's being part of the you know the established sporting network i think in some countries being part of the olympic movement is uh you know is almost your you know, your entry pass to being part of that nas- the, the the national sporting you know structure and and i think in you, you, we've had so many of our members over time wanting to be part of that uh you know that framework at a national level and and i think that you know that the opportunity to to be involved uh, is what's drawn us to to wanting you know to, to the Olympic movement and you know the fact that all of our members can can really benefit from that
1: Jeff it's interesting with um, the way that team sports operate in the Olympics I'm sure one of the points of interest will be will all of the biggest and best players, the star names, be involved in it. And that's not necessarily the case with other team sports in the Olympics. Most of the best basketball players don't come from the NBA. The the best baseball players don't come and play baseball. Uh, football's essentially a development tournament in the Olympics as opposed to World Cups. How do you anticipate it panning out with cricket? Is it likely to be the star international players as they are, or or might it be more of a, another tier of players like we would see with football?
3: Oh no, I think the I, I, I think we'll be trying to bring our best athletes to the Olympic Games, male and female. In that the formats, yeah, you know, we, you know, we'd be targeting shorter, shortest format. And I think the you know other other sports, uh, uh, you know, uh, whether it be tennis or whether it be golf. You know, basketball over, over the journey is they've all brought their marquee names to the, to the Olympic Games and I wouldn't have thought that we'd, we'd be any different who, they, who those marquee names are in 2028 not 100% sure but I think the you know the aim would be for, for everyone to be fielding their their, their best team and you know, but what the format of the competition like yeah, looks like in 2028 is still a, still a matter to be worked through as part of any proposal that we put it put forward with LA. When this was being talked about in a in an earlier phase, perhaps a less mature
2: phase, I remember James Sutherland saying, "Well, it could be beach cricket, for example." But we, we moved away from that novelty, haven't we? It really, in keeping with the IAC's framework, it would need to be a format of the game that it has a world championship, and therefore, I mean, it's going to be T20, isn't it? It won't be T10, it won't be 100 balls. It, it'll be T20, where there's an existing framework of a world championship in order to to clear that bar in place from the IAC.
3: Yeah, I mean that that that'd certainly be our starting point. Given, and that's the that's the consistent message that we've got from the IOCs that they you know they want an established international format, and that you know for us that you know fits well with our structures for, for men's and women's T20 at this stage.
1: What's changed in the last little while to make this possible? Where you know a couple of the bigger boards weren't interested in having the Olympics happen. What's shifted to get it over the line?
3: I think two. I mean, two things probably. One is the the, the view on how to best grow the game, and some some countries obviously seeing you know what Olympic involvement could could mean. Um, also the the views at national level and 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 how uh olympic involvement fits in with uh, you know with with national aims whether that be sporting or or um whether that be cricket you know sporting more generally or whether that's within the cricket organization so i think that you know that'd be the two things i would have said have shifted over the last couple of years.
2: And I suppose the data that you collect as well, the fact that, what, 92% of our fans uh, are from South Asia and the IAC have a stated mission to make the Olympic movement bigger in that part of the world, not least India, who haven't been a high-performing nation... At the Olympics, historically, well, now the BCCI are in the cart for this, and they haven't been historically. And the IOC are keen on having a, a bigger footprint uh, in their movement from India. I mean, it's kind of the perfect storm, isn't it?
3: Yeah, I think the the Olympics are very, you know, very strong in in areas where we would like to get a get a better footprint, and 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 I think cricket's very strong in areas where the IOC would like to get a bigger footprint. So. I think it, it works well for, but we've got a you know we're going to be, it's not going to be easy for us. It's we're going to be up against uh, a number of sports who are going to be very hungry to be involved, and uh, you know we've also got to fit in with the with the aim the aims of the the LA Games organisers as well. And uh, you know when we get into more detailed con- detailed conversations with them, you know we'll tailor our proposal accordingly.
1: So the plan is making that pitch to LA to have them. Involve cricket as an invited sport, and then hopefully to repeat that in Brisbane to have them invite cricket. Is the idea then that having, if you can get a couple of successful outings, having been included, you might be able to go from there to being a permanent inclusion?
3: Oh, hopefully we could put our best foot forward. If we put our best foot forward twice, we could. But you know, we don't. We're not sure of what the what the process. I mean, we're still waiting on the to, to have the process confirmed for for LA um, twenty twenty eight you know, via, via the, LO, uh, the LOC and, and the IOC as well. Um, you know, w- w- Brisbane's just been announced. So, you know, what the process is for Brisbane is probably a bit further down the track, but obviously we'd be keen to, uh, to be involved in any conversations with the, you know, the organisers in Brisbane as well. I suppose a little
2: wrinkle that people point to with Olympic involvement or, or multi-sport uh, formats is the West Indies, and how do you get around that? But the fact that cricket's going to be in the Commonwealth Games at Birmingham next year for women's T20 cricket, it does give you a bit of a framework, doesn't it, in terms of effectively picking a representative from the Caribbean?
3: Yeah, that's right. I think you know you, we, we're we're really excited about what what um, uh, Birmingham could do for you know for cricket and. You know, I think the the women's cricket event in Birmingham will be a will be a fantastic draw card and the qualification for that is just is being finalized one of the one of the the uh, qualification issues is which team represents the Caribbean in uh, in Birmingham and I think the re, you know that region and the West Indies cricket board is, is very excited in to identify that team and also to be in part to be involved in in multi-sport games and I think that um, you know the the, the Caribbean representation, if, if or the Americas representation, if you like, around any um, any LA Games would be a great. You know the, the, that that qualification process will be exciting and really in, in uh, energise a number of countries in that region. And Jeff, in closing, I suppose um, this
2: is for you, having been the acting CEO for a short period of time. But uh, I suppose your hat will be in the ring, not expecting a big exclusive here or anything, but to take the job full time—a good opportunity for you as a potentially reforming uh, CEO of the organisation to do something nice and big from the get-go. That must be quite exciting.
3: Yeah, on the cricket side, I think we've got—you know—we've we've, uh, finalized our event schedule for the next eight years. You know, the, Olymp- the, the LA Olympics fits into that period as well, so that's also part. So, the, you know, the, the cricket calendar. And, and the opportunities to grow the game in that period at, you know, through, through our, our major event exposure I think is starting to really take shape. So it, you know, it, it's exciting to be able to talk about this on the, on the back of the Tokyo Games but you know, the, the work to, to get included in or, or to put our best proposal forward for LA 2028 is, only, is really getting started now. Good stuff. Well, Jeff, thanks for taking some time to talk with us today. Hopefully, we can get you back on the show to have a
2: long uh, conversation about your agenda uh, as chief executive into the future. And uh, yes, thank
1: you for uh, making the time today.
3: Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Jeff.
1: That was Jeff Allardyce, the acting CEO of the ICC. And who knows, maybe soon, the permanent CEO of the ICC. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Uh, but the important thing is that we know the format we've got an idea of the structure. Now we've just got to get an Olympic committee to agree to let it in. Um, but it will be T20 cricket. It won't be, the, I mean, some of the the, the the more hilarious suggestions that we've heard over the last few years. Yeah, that's right. So a couple of things to take from that. First of all, Jeff Allardyce
2: wants to join the final word for that longer conversation. So looking forward to uh, um, getting the chance to sort of do the big state of the nation chat with him. Maybe when he's the appointed full-time uh, chief exec, let, let's hope that's the case. Because you can see that, or you can hear even through that interview that he's a guy who, who wants to shake things up and, and reform the game, which can only be a good thing. And yes, when it comes to the format of what would be an Olympic Games, the the IOC are pretty clear that you need to have an existing international world championship infrastructure and t20 has that so i mean joe root was asked a question in his press conference today uh, about oh what about the hundred a breathless sort of question what about the hundred for the olympic games and joe i mean who obviously hasn't been briefed and, and nor should he be briefed by the way he's got a test match to play in a couple of days goes uh, uh, i mean sure it, it makes sense if, if we're going to have an olympic games and the hundred might be a good format well Here's the thing. I reckon we need to sort of help with the misinformation here. It's not going to be T10, no matter how often Mm -hmm. it's written in the paper. It's not going to be the 100. It's not going to be beach cricket, as was put years ago. It's not going to be indoor cricket. It's going to be T20 cricket. We need to sing off the same song sheet as a sport, we need to be unified for once and help make sure that we're all, you know, bringing our collective effort at trying to Mm -hmm. get this over the line. What we don't want to look like is a rabble and disorganised and squabbling amongst ourselves. So whether you like it or not, it's going to be T20 cricket, kind of get with the program.
1: You know what would be handy is if say a T20 match didn't take four and a half hours to get through. That would be pretty useful <laughs> for an Olympics. Imagine if they could, you know, get through one in three hours like was originally supposed well, to Well, I mean, I, I
2: suppose they will, won't they? Because we see, I haven't got this to hand, the stat, but isn't it the case that baseball at the Olympics and basketball at the Olympics are, are played in far narrower windows and not just because of the the length of the game but they have just it culturally takes a, a shorter span of time yeah. so and i'm sure that by the time we get the 2028 20, jeff we would have um fixed the at problem per our discussion on the show a few weeks ago so that'll be all in the rear vision mirror
1: <laughs> well okay we can we can only <laughs> hope uh i think it's the time on the show where we play a little game you want to play a game i do indeed all right it's late at night here so I'm just going to say this uh, Soto Voce, we're going to play a game called Nerd Pledge Nerd Pledge It's the reverse quiz, it's the game we play with people on our Patreon page uh, They help us make the show because we make the show twice a week and so they're the people who support us doing it, they send us a contribution, uh, it's an amount of currency of their choice, it's not a normal amount, it's not a round number, it's a very specific number because the number relates to cricket in some way and we have to work out what the number means for instance our nerd pleasure for this show is Xavier Bochat or Javier Bochat uh, depending how you want to do it his number is $12.90 1290 and Xavier has sent through a clue as well which you don't have to do but he has saying I donated twelve ninety because it had to be over $3 and I couldn't do 129 good luck can't wait to hear it. This is possibly the greatest podcast segment in the history of podcasts. So not only has Xavier chipped in with a very generous 1290, he's also given us a very generous compliment. So we love Xavier already. 1290 is the clue, but it's 129. What have you made of 129, Adam Collins?
2: Yeah, well, thank you, Xavier.
1: Um, That's really nice of you to say
2: and uh, really kind of you to send that much money through. And I just thought, well, 129, let's find the best possible, the greatest example of 129, Mm -hmm. um, given um, the the, the nature of the sentence he sent through. And that has to be the great Sidney Barnes, who was um, cap number 129 for England. Now, we've talked about his 189 test wickets in in some depth in the past, so, you know, 27...
1: Yeah, exhaustive detail. Yeah, I mean... I think we talked about them one by one. I reckon we went through from one to one. There's a point. little bit of that.
2: I mean, they came at 16 in 27 test matches between 1901 and, and 1904. Mm. You know, his extreme late swing, how he was the quickest bowler going around in his pomp, then he kind of turned into this canny seamer uh, later on in the piece.
1: But I, I sort of feel... But he though, always said he was a spinner. He always yes, argued he was a spinner. fast roller. spinner. That was his... in yeah. His insistence through his whole career was that he spun the ball. Don't call him a seamer. He didn't like being called a seamer. He'll come back and haunt you if you call him a (laughs) seamer. And and the other thing that's always confusing is there was also a batsman called Sydney Barnes who played for Australia. So that used to... That used to fuck me up endlessly. I'd be like, wait, hang on. He's playing for Australia now and he's making runs. And what's, you know, I got confused so many times when I was first doing some cricket history. Um, but they're two different people. They very I much hope that's helpful. are two different people.
2: They did very different things. But yeah, so, I mean, I quite like the journey of him sort of being Cap 129 and, and either side of him receiving his first cap. How it all starts for him is he's a mm-hmm. pro in the Lancashire League. Because that's what he did. Right. I mean, he wasn't playing first-class cricket. He was proing. And Archie McLaren wanted to see him and have a look before he took his team out to Australia in 1901, 1902. So he dragged him down to Old Trafford oh, for yes. a net. Oh,
1: Celebrity racist Archie McLaren. <laughs> he
2: dragged him down for a net. Yeah. And in the nets, uh, 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 Barnes smashes him on the thigh, goes up to apologise to, to the England captain who says, no, no. No need to apologise You're on the boat You're coming So he gets (laughs) He gets uh, on the tour On the back of that Takes 5 for 65 From 35.1 overs On on DeBoo And then 13 wickets In a losing effort In the second test match And then they lose The series 4-1 So the correlation there is As soon as Barnes is injured The arse falls out and Australia thrashed him. He, he he got asked bowl eighty overs in the second Test match, which uh, might have contributed to why his his own thigh was was cooked uh, at the end of that second Test. Yeah. But then he do it. he kind of disappears for five years. Uh, you know, and this is you know this has been written about uh, in in great depth by a lot of authors over mm. the years. But from nineteen oh two to kind of nineteen oh seven, he's just not really about. I mean, he, d- he does play in nineteen oh two. Sorry, he plays in that Sheffield Test match, the one at Bramall Lane, the one off okay. Test match there, uh, and and takes wickets there. Um, take six for, then they don't play in the next week at Manchester, which of course Australia win the Ashes by like three runs or something like that, mm. uh, and then he kind of go, "No, you know what? If you don't What's, pick me for that was Test he match, yeah, this is I don't really know why he wasn't picked, but he wasn't. That was when was he
1: like? Well, no, but what was he doing for the five years? Was it like a gap year? Or yeah, like, like well, did he, ex- did he have a touch of the Wally Hammond? No, or? no, the, like, the
2: extra, well, This is the thing: he didn't play much first-class cricket. So you look at his overall numbers: he's taken 189 Test wickets, but only 226 when playing for his county. Principally, he was just off playing in the leagues because he preferred to be a pro. The the rhythm... Of you know the eight days a week nature of first class cricket did not suit him, so instead right. he played on Saturdays for Staffordshire and just did his thing.
1: So, so would you? Would he have been paid as a county player? Had he been? No.
2: Well, they might. Playing, I mean, he, right. I suppose. I mean, I don't know how much they would have been paid in that era, but the rhythms of playing just on Saturdays were mm. were more in keeping. And he was probably. And I know. Right. And I know this much. He was earning a lot more for playing for Staffordshire than he would have been sort of playing mm. first class cricket. So, yeah. So he misses the nineteen oh three oh four Ashes trip. He misses the nineteen 19- 1905, Ashes at Home as well, and he, he finally comes back to the whole thing in 1907, 08 uh, a tour where uh, he actually gets Trumper out three times for a duck in consecutive matches. So he's back, you know, back in the mm. groove pretty much straight away. And then his piece of resistance is the tour of 1911-12 when um, Johnny yep. won't hit today. Um, he didn't give him the new ball at Sydney, and he and he kind of sulked off and bowled sort of 30 overs, cracking the shits. And then in response <laughs> to that, he took uh, three five wicket bags in a row. England win the tour 4-1. Uh, it's his finest hour as an England bowler, nearly matched mm. by the. Forty-nine wickets he took at eleven against South Africa that we yep. talked about before, but you know it's it's winning at Ashes on his own.
1: That was a busted ass South African team playing on matting. Mats, that's on, right. On yeah, you know matting wickets, and that's yeah, that's the series. He's still top of the pops for the most wickets in a series, but he also cracked the shits at one point on that tour and refused to play a Test match. So yes. he played four <laughs> Tests and took forty-nine, uh, but could have played a fifth Test and taken another. 16 or whatever.
2: Yeah and there's like this classic example of what he was able to do at Staffordshire so he took 14 wickets for 13 runs in a game against Cheshire in 1909 which is just preposterous Uh, and then uh, against Northumberland uh, he took 16 in one day uh, against them, I think that's a little bit later on and yeah in 19...
1: With a a follow on was
2: it? Yeah I I assume that must have been a follow on Hmm. yeah and he took 14 for 29 against an Indian touring team in 1911 so you get a sense for the extent to which he dominated at that Mm -hmm. level below in in the minor counties. He ended up, I mean, living to a very long age. He he kept playing cricket until his mid-50s. In uh, 1928, I think it was, against the touring West Indian Mm -hmm. team, in his mid-50s, they still thought he was the most damaging bowler they faced on the whole tour. Like He could have (laughs) still played test cricket some 14 years after his previous test match. And there 's a story that he still attended Lords in his ninety fifth year in one thousand nine hundred and sixty seven just before he mm-hmm. died. he came to Lords and he brought a blind Wilfred Rhodes around with him, uh, his old mm. mate who he played with for so long uh, earlier in his career uh, and In the case of Barnes, he, he passed away in thousand nine hundred and sixty seven aged ninety four and Rhodes died uh, six years later, having made it to ninety five so both lived long lives and still loved cricket all the way to the end. So going through those numbers again for Staffordshire, he took one thousand four hundred and forty-one wickets at eight point one five, so you know <laughs> that. Then they're, they're non-professional, non-professional games. County cricket just two twenty-six yeah. wickets. Other first-class matches, so not playing county cricket, not playing Test cricket. So presumably that's a combination of tour games, MCC games, that kind of thing. He, mm-hmm. he took three hundred and four wickets and other league games and club games uh, across the the span of cricket that he was turning out for, an additional 4,069 wickets at 6.03 to make a tally of Test County First Class Staffordshire League and Club of 6,229 wickets at an average of 8.33. But for the purpose of our (laughs) pledge today, uh, he was cap 129 or 1290 uh, for uh, Javier Borchardt.
1: <laughs> That's beautiful. Um, yeah, six thousand two hundred wickets. You'd be, you'd be weary after that. And also, when he showed up with Wilford Rhodes when they were both ninety, um, like probably if he'd showed up to a Brian Close eleven, he would have got a game, and it would have been, would have been another first class stat. You
2: know? He would have no
1: taken. Yeah, he might have got a test and taken
2: eleven in the game to get to join the two hundred club to be the first bowler into that. <laughs> Not quite,
1: Xavier. Because of your excellent number, uh, you get to give away a slab of Brick Lane. Uh, the the finest beer going around, the Brick Lane Brewing community. It might be the One Love Pale Ale. uh, You know, it might be the Someday Sour. uh, It might be the, the Backyarder Crisp Lager. I don't know. Who knows what's coming your way? Maybe you can choose. I'm not sure how this whole process works. I'm just the guy on the show. But Brick Lane make delicious beer. And we can send a case of it to anywhere in Australia. So if you want to have that yourself and you're in Australia, you can. If you're not in Australia, you can send it to someone who is and they will love you for it it will be a, a beautiful thing that you can do for an australian and who doesn't want to do a nice thing for an australian <laughs> once in a while uh, so so that that information will be winging its way to you xavier uh, after this show
2: so all of the brick lane uh, details are in the show notes the website the social media handles as well i've loved seeing so many of your photos be it on twitter or instagram or on the discord channel as well uh, which has been going great guys actually jeff left Discord for a couple of days when I was under the pump last week calling the first test match and returned to it with hundreds and hundreds of messages in there. So uh, that's all mm-hmm. part of it with what we're doing at the moment on the Patreon page. You can join that patron.com forward slash the final word. It'll mean after you put an earned pledge in, you have every chance to, to pick up a slab uh, from Brick Lane or at least have the chance to on-send the slab to someone that you like in Australia, which, you know, uh, it isn't always an easy thing for people that live in the UK, but I'm sure there is someone in Australia There's who has got to be like. someone. There's got to be, be at somebody.
1: least one Australian that you like.
2: <laughs> and here's the thing. We like Brick Lane because they're supporting the show, helping us do what we do, uh, and we're proud to be in association with them. Check out what they do, as I say. Join them on social media and look them up on the website and buy yourself some beer
1: on the weekend if that's your thing. And if you want to send us a Nerd Pledge, very easy. Go to patreon.com slash the final word. Right. From Nerd Pledge to England and India and the test match and the result that wasn't... Deeply, deeply frustrating that fifth day when, you know, any rain off is annoying. But when you get a rain off when you've got an absolute corker set up, the number of people who are saying India will will walk this in, I don't think it was going to be that easy Mm. on the last day. 150 plus, nine wickets in hand, but it only takes one to start things off. You know, you lose a couple quickly and suddenly we've seen how difficult it can be. We saw... The way that both sides in the World Test Championship final struggled to get anywhere near uh, innings of 200 runs, we've we've seen how difficult it can be in England, particularly where you know scores of 180, 190 can be pretty challenging. It could have been a, an all-time classic last day. We'll never know.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. For those who are saying that India are going to walk it, they haven't been following, as you say, Test cricket in England in recent times. And look, that's the that's the benefit you get for for winning the toss and batting in challenging conditions on the first morning. So, you know, Mm -hmm. runs on the board... It does have an effect when you get to the back of a test match, which is going to be uh, won uh, or lost on on the final day when chasing a modest tally. And still, I mean, the victory target of whatever it was, 209, wasn't huge, Mm. but it had a turn in front of it. England did have a wicket overnight, and they have um, some very experienced bowlers, especially on on the final day. So I I thought it was game on. Uh, So my frustration, again, and I'm sure it was yours as well, Jeff, returns to a a favourite topic of ours of how do we find a way to keep playing cricket in England when it's raining. (laughs) And, and just to say one thing on this, I saw some quite extreme tweets about this saying, well, it's going to cost half a billion quid to put a roof up. We're not talking about putting a roof up. We've really stopped talking about putting a roof up because all of the smart people that, Jeff, you and I have corresponded with on the Guardian Live blog in the last, what, two, three, four years, whenever this comes up, maybe even longer now, they all say the same thing. You fix it, not with a roof, but with drones. What you need to get is some drones set up and holding up a, a big sheet, over the ground in sort of a hot air balloon style formation, which apparently is not that hard to do. I mean, it's, it's not easy to do either, but it's not, this isn't like putting man on the moon again. It is, it's much more straightforward than trying to retrofit roofs over cricket grounds. So, mm. yeah, it feels like, I mean, this might sound mental, this is the first thing I'm talking about here, but we're going to have more days of cricket rained off into the future. We know that. We have talked to experts on climate change on this program before. If we want to see Test Cricket overcome that challenge I mean obviously the better way would to be for our, our game and, and our planet to, to reduce its carbon footprint I'm sure but like in the short term in this transition phase when there is more rain about surely we need to find some way to keep the rain off the ground I, I, I'm sorry to rant but I just feel as though we move to the next thing and we don't talk about the problem that happened yesterday which is something that probably can be solved if if enough smart people put their minds to it
1: well I, I'm sure we know that the CCCP have this technology we know that they can send fighter jets up to seed clouds and make it rain or make it not rain, <laughs> whatever it needs, like clouds of clouds. Of, of- copper filings or whatever it needs to be. There are ways to do this. There's got to be some sort of, I don't know, sound cannons or something that can disperse precipitation. Or we just develop a waterproof ball and, you know, it's like stop being so precious. It's got to be the shade well, cloth. We-
2: Doesn't it just have to be the shade cloth? I'm using the wrong works. It won't be a shade cloth as such. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, you've had these emails too from engineers who are like, no, yeah. no, 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 no. It's not about a roof. It's about something that's held up aloft by drones. I mean, it sounds kind of stupid until you think about it. If all these drones are doing is holding up a giant canopy of sorts... I mean, we mm-hmm. could do this, right? I mean, you know, if you're an engineer listening to us today and, you, and you've got a solution, tell us about it and, I don't know, we might pass it to our old mate, Jeff Allardyce, who's to know. Give us ideas and give us thoughts because the mm-hmm. roof thing ain't going to happen.
1: No, the roof's not going to happen, but there's got to be a way. Or, you know, it could be things like, you know, crazy things like starting earlier on days when the weather is fine, which happened at least a couple of times during that match when it was sunny and decent during the morning, but they still don't start till 11 o'clock.
2: How on earth... How on Wherever they stuff that up, by the way. So the ECB last year, bowing to pressure started games earlier they had the flexibility to start games at half past 10 which they've never built in before certainly not mm-hmm. until they moved I mean cricket did start at ten forty-five. then it started at 11 and for historical silly reasons it's always starts at 11 on the dot rather than building in flexibility to wind it back until last year for the final couple of test matches they did give themselves that flexibility why was it this week first test against India that we couldn't start before 11 o'clock why was 11 o'clock sacrosanct again did they forget that they fixed this problem 12 months ago
1: Mm-hmm. Do they actually forget as it comes to that? And equally, the ICC issues with going off for bad light when it's not really that bad and when you have floodlights, you know, they've got to revise that or have some flexibility and the kind of things that, that we've talked about, about swapping out a pink ball if you need to play under floodlights, like, I know it's not perfect, I know it doesn't preserve the absolute sanctity of the contest in terms of having the one ball that ages over the course of 80 overs and so on, but you know what, they swap the ball every fucking two hours during a test match anyway, oh, it's gone a bit out of shape, swap it out for another one. Oh, this one started swinging more, oh, you know, joy or shame or someone gets mad, like, this happens all the time regardless. And if you've got a choice between having no cricket or having some cricket that's maybe a little bit compromised in terms of the the perfect evolution of the contest, you're probably still better to get on and play.
2: Yeah, I think that the talking... I mean, obviously, I've been advancing that argument for a long time that you can can replace a red for a pink until the close of play. Um, Talking to some experts in the field, apparently the pink ball isn't quite there to that extent yet. But, you know, it can be an aspiration. It can be an aspiration. So, uh, by that I mean... Still better older, than nothing. ...that the older pink ball, it's hard mm. to replicate the how an older pink ball looks compared to an older red ball. So, that's about the new ball, yep. more about the older ball. But, but nevertheless, yeah, that's there. But... Look, we just got to get resourceful, don't we? We got to get creative. And it didn't look good when they were coming off when they came off at different times this week. And it's a boring topic, Mm -hmm. but it's an unfortunate one that we have to keep returning to from time to time. And yeah, I think the easiest one to deal with—not the easiest one, but the the most important one to deal with—is rain, and how Mm -hmm. at test venues we can find some solution that, that involves. Mitigating the rain that's falling, and and Mm. I just don't think we should write it off as sort of crazy, sort of science fiction. There has to be some way through this.
1: Yeah. And I would also ask why, as we've said before about a million times, why can't an English ground do like a Sri Lankan ground does and cover the entire surface so that you don't have three hours waiting for the wet outfield to dry um, and trying to prep the surface back up. So look, there are these issues. There are also issues with England's test team more so than India's. Uh, Very interesting to hear that Moen Ali has got the SOS sending out an SOS. He's coming back baby. He wouldn't be coming into the squad if he wasn't coming into the 11. Some Somehow this remarkable antipathy towards a supremely talented cricketer and presumably towards spin bowling in general is going to shift because, I mean, I don't know what is with Chris Silverwood, but the guy who picked four quicks in India and then picked four quicks very unsuccessfully against New Zealand and then talks about learning from their failings all the time. Still went and picked four quicks and no spinner um, in the first test And that could have cost them It ended up being low scoring enough that, mm. that it didn't But it might have, you know, that might have been the difference on the last day Not having a spinner had they been trying to bowl India out without rain So yeah, uh, things are changing quickly in that camp There's not a lot of cohesiveness with the supposed vision that they set out
2: yeah, Mo and Ali, the love you gave me, nothing else can save me. SOS. I think that like this was something that I kind of weirdly anticipated a few days ago on our broadcast. Mm-hmm. So they're saying like, if they can't find room for a spinner, then they need to find a spinner who can bat in the top seven. They've only got one option. It has to be a Mo and Ali. Like, by deduction, it's not good. I feel so desperately
1: sorry for Jack Leach. Mm-hmm.
2: He bowled really well in India. And in Sri Lanka,
1: in tough circumstances, in tough
2: yeah. circumstances, Ru- you know, no runs on the board, seldom any runs on the board, and there's Jack mm. Leach routinely doing the job, you know, making his contribution, three for or four for after three for or four for, and now can't get a game in England, and, and certainly won't play here. So it'll be four consecutive home Test matches that he's been overlooked for, and then six last summer, so test, ten Test matches in a row in England where they've gone a different way. Be it in 2020 when they went with Don Best rather, and then this year where they've gone without altogether. Hearing Joe Root. Talk talked before about Moeen. Uh, He sort of talked about his confidence at the moment. In short form, cricket, his capability as a match winner at test Mm -hmm. level, which is not to be doubted. The fact that Moeen's only played one test match in the last two years, though, and that was at Chennai, and all the controversy around him coming home after that is a bit of a thing. I don't think it's an absolute lock that he's playing they they still want to see the pitch at Lords before they uh, are definitive around this, and there's other complications in the England eleven around Ollie Pope will he be fit to play? He hasn't done a fitness test as yet you know uh, ha Permeed yeah. as well are, are they going to be reluctant if if Pope's fit mm. and has Supermead comes in, will they necessarily be willing to make three changes, three changes to a test eleven no matter why or how, is a big deal. So they might be reticent to change it up
1: to that extent. Conversely, three changes to a Test 11 that's not very good could be seen to be beneficial. It it could be
2: seen to be on the front foot. But Haseeb, I reckon, is the most likely to play. Zach Crawley, Mm. there's no doubt that he has the ability to be a long-term Test cricketer. Sorry, there is a doubt. I shouldn't be as emphatic as that. It isn't beyond any reasonable doubt that he might just be a county player. But it looks like he's got all what you need, to be a long-term player, but he's desperately out of form and out of runs. And, Jeff, how often have mm-hmm. we said on this program that if a player is battling their ass off, that you are doing them a favour to leave them out of the test level and to take them out of the firing line send mm-hmm. him back to domestic cricket to get the specialised coaching that he needs to build in confidence and maybe be viable to, to come to Australia later in the year. And in the short yeah. term, Hasip Amid, two hundreds for knots earlier in the season, one for the County 11 against his Indian bowling attack, including Bumrah and Shami mm-hmm. and shuttle Dukur played in that, that match as well, I'm pretty sure. Mohamed Siraj certainly yep. did. Um, he's made and, runs against this attack p- two weeks ago. P- p-
1: He peeled one off in the 50 over stuff as well. Mm -hmm. He made a runnable 100 and he was plonking sixes over long on. So, you know, the the world absolutely turned on its head yeah the stats on crawley where what is the average 10 since he made that double hundred but then i also find it curious that people are so keen to get ollie pope back in because he's had a run just as bad as crawley over the last year or so he's had a, an absolutely um, torrid run in in terms of his returns
2: yeah he has although and this is the thing isn't it test matches aren't spreadsheets are they you know like i would say you know who am i who am i but i would say that I would have more faith in Olly Pope making runs for England this week than I would Zach Crawley. Like my gut says that Olly Pope mm. looks a more accomplished player across the board at this stage of his career than Zach Crawley and Zach Crawley looks like he can't make one right now. He looks Mm. incredibly timid and nervous, and you you can't have that from your number three. So what England can do is play three openers. And yeah, you know, the great national debate, well, not national debate, (laughs) because to be a national debate, you need the whole country talking about cricket, which it isn't. But Dom Sibley having faced 203 deliveries for 18 and 28 in the first test does mean that you can build a case either way, can't you? If you're mm-hmm. a critic of Sibley, uh, I saw Tim DeLyle wrote a piece today saying, you know, that messes with the rhythm of a team. Having a player mm-hmm. who consumes so many balls without being productive, uh, it can stunt momentum. Others will say, well, look, if he's faced 203 deliveries, he's making life easier uh, for those that come after. So an inconclusive mm-hmm. performance, I suppose, at Trent Bridge from the right-hander. And, but he'll keep his spot, mm-hmm. that's for sure.
1: I think it depends greatly on who he's batting with because when Sibley was batting with Joe Root, that partnership looked fine uh, because Root was looking like a million bucks. He was scoring at a clip of, I don't know, 75 to 80 sort of strike rate, which meant that it didn't matter that Sibley was batting it Ten, because they were still, you know, ticking along at three and over, and it was it was enough. It was good enough. It was quick enough. When he doesn't have someone with that level of assurance and confidence at the other end, which is everybody else in the England team, is maybe Sam Curran. I suppose has the the kind of confidence in himself, even if he's not as accomplished a player. But aside from that, everybody else is in their shells so much that it makes it very difficult when there's someone else at the other end who who isn't going to be able to push on like that. And when you have that top three that goes Burns, Sibley, Hamid, if that's the way it works out, like that's a pretty slow top three. I mean, when, when Burns is the aggressor out of your trio, you're not really four to the floor at any point. <laughs>
2: I would just balance that out by saying that Hamid's a more aggressive player than the one we might remember from five years ago. Like he does play more fluently now. So I reckon that on better tracks – and look – Lords was a, a very good track uh, what was it six weeks ago against New Zealand that was a very good pitch mm-hmm. great great test wicket. I wouldn't be surprised if he does well there if it's hard It's not raining at the moment uh, you know if they get a couple of good days prep into it and even if they bat second and it's flatter mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't doubt that Hamid would be a good option there at number three and can bat at a much higher tempo than Sibley and maybe even burns so yeah mm-hmm. looking forward to seeing how that. All plays out in England 11 I suppose that the best thing About the Indian team Is we're not really Talking about them They must Mm -hmm. find a way To get Ashwin in at Lords. I have Mm -hmm. no idea How they're going to do it I mean You know Siraj is such a competitor I feel like I want him In the team Uh, Takur is a very capable Swing bowler He compliments Boomerah and Shami so well, who basically picked themselves. And Jadeja balances them off perfectly. So, I mean, the classic good problem to have there.
1: Yeah, I think, as as I've... No one will be surprised who's ever listened to the show, but I think you have to go... uh, You have to have Shardell Tucker in the team at the moment because you need that extra batting in England. And if you can go Jadeja 7, Ashwin 8... Tucker, nine, you know, you've suddenly got a really capable team going down the order. I think, you know, I love Saraj, but I think he's probably the one who mm. needs to make way if someone's making way. But, yeah, it's tough to do given the, given the way he shapes the ball in the air and how useful that could be at Lord's. He's he's not going to be leading the attack with, with Boomer and Shami there, but he's the kind of guy who can take two very useful wickets right when you need them. So, yeah, it's a tough call. Yeah, it's
2: extremely rare that Coley plays the same 11 in two consecutive test matches mm. as well. Like He loves rotating it around. He never lets a, an opposing team settle. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to when the team sheets exchanged at Lords on, on Thursday morning. I'll be back broadcasting that test on SCN if you're in Australia or New Zealand. All through the night, I can keep you company.
1: All through the night. Okay, I think it's time to take a deep breath and then go to John Doyle.
4: Hi, I'm Isha Gua, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and
1: Jeff Levin. Jeff, we're
2: nearly halfway through August, which means this magazine will probably have September on the front, Wisdom Cricket Monthly, despite the fact Mm -hmm. that the Test series featured on the cover started in the first couple of days of August. That's the way that magazines work, especially when they're done month by month. But I love the fact that in the sort of peak of summer, maybe Mm -hmm. we're beyond the peak of summer. Is August still... Peak of summer? I don't know. The longest day was a long time ago. That's back in I think June. It, I
1: think it's the other side of the peak. I yeah. think we're on the downward the
2: peak. Do- what do they call it in America? The dog days of summer in baseball speak. I think we're into the dog okay. days of summer now. Mm. That we, we have got these five test matches that go deep into September. And Wisdom Cricket mm. Monthly is saying, you know what? This is the big one. This is, as they're calling it, the collision course between Joe
1: Root and Virat Coley. The collision course. The two titans of the game. That's right. It's all about... India, England, the evolving relationship between the two superpowers. That's what Wisdom Cricket Monthly calls it. Their words, not mine, superpowers. So there's an 18-page India, England section. It's got an Ollie Pope interview about... The growing pains of Test cricket. It's got a profile of Muhammad Siraj, the fast bowling outlier, as he's described. It's got a celebration of Haseeb Hamid, his rejuvenation, nice. coming back, coming good at just the right time. Also, there are interviews with Ian Botham talking about a little series you might have heard called the 1981
2: Ashes. There is. I sh- <laughs> Get over it, England. Get over it. Oh, 1981. I think they're entitled. Oh, remember 1981. If you're going to do no. Botham stuff and 81 stuff, 40 years after the fact, this is the month when all hell broke loose in that series. So.
1: 40. Maybe fifty years after them. This is raising the bat at one fifty. Like you know, forty years. What's forty years? That's not that's, that's not a milestone. Nineteen eighty one. Do you remember nineteen eighty one? No, I don't because I wasn't the, born yet. You know, it, and I'm old. If it didn't happen in my lifetime. Then it is too long ago. Like, there, there, was a, um, there was a there was a a podcast I was a
2: guest on recently about the electrifying eighties, which is sure mm-hmm. was a tape that you had growing up as well, Jeff, about the uh, the decade of AFL football. And my introduction, mm-hmm. if you like, to Ashes Cricket, well, maybe not expressly my introduction, but to Ian Botham in the 81 Ashes series yep. was it being described in the voiceover, comparing Malcolm Blight's month uh, to Ian
1: Botham's month. <laughs> Uh, remember when Beefy kicked a seventy metre torpedo after the sirens? He's kicked wind? at eighty
2: metres. Uh, so yes, there's Beefy talking about the eighty-one ashes, and actually that's an interview that Phil did. Phil Walker, whose wedding we were at the other day, or well, you were virtually, mm-hmm. and I was physically, yep. and we had him on the on the daily show. Phil went up there and had a couple bottles of wine with him at Botham's Estate, I suppose it is, mm-hmm. uh, up there in um, the northeast of England. So uh, I'm sure that'll be an entertaining run of quotes through the interview. Uh, Matthew Hoggard is uh, interviewed about the moments of his career i saw matthew Hoggard a couple of weeks ago jeff when i was set to play a game at wormsley as part of the the, the professional cricketers association celebration mm-hmm. there was all these former players involved we were going to have a cricket writers team playing the barmy army it pissed it down all day and we didn't get on it was all a bit of a debacle but matthew Hoggard was there with the tools ready to run the barbecue for the pca so i was still very much involved in the game
1: do you think that Cam up in the interview as one of the defining moments of his career. Um, that <laughs> Doing day. the barbecue, I hope the it did. Um, <laughs> Andrew Strauss is in there as well, discussing the game today and his place in it. Prince Andrew, as I've sometimes called him in the past and probably shouldn't anymore. Probably shouldn't after and, the revelations overnight. <laughs> yep. Um, and Sandeep Lamachain on the cricketing revolution in Nepal. So there's heaps going on. There's the county files yep. with all the uh, news and interviews from the 18 counties, and then the columnists uh, Andrew Miller's in there. Funnily enough, writing about England misusing Mo Ali. Uh, that's pretty prescient. Lizzie Ammon on the ping-demic. Uh, county players getting wiped out by track and trace. Isabel Westbury on the danger of pigeonholing. Players and Lawrence Booth is coming on as a columnist to talk about the first two weeks of the hundred. And Andy Zaltzman looks at the number eighteen. Uh, that sounds that sounds very familiar as a segment idea. I'm glad <laughs> that Zaltz is, is is running with the spiritual middle-pledge theme. What do you think uh, when you hear the number eighteen? What's your first thought? Uh, first thought is Bradman making eighteen and one. In, oh, on debut.
2: good. That's that's strong. Mm. That's strong. At least yours is cricket. The first thing that'll always come to mind for me is Darren Pritchard. Forever and ever, amen. What a wingman. (laughs) Number 18. Okay, well, here's the most important information. We told you all about the September edition of Wisdom Cricket Monthly. You can get it Mm -hmm. at a radically discounted rate. The digital edition, Mm -hmm. 44% off. That's nearly half price off. They've gone completely mad giving us nearly half price off bit.ly forward slash WCMTFW, which WCM means W, (laughs) W Winston Cricket Monthly. TFW means the final word. All in the show notes, 44% off for six editions, for 10 great British pounds, 10 squid, or 15 Aussie dollars, that roughly comes to maybe... 13 mm-hmm. us dollars we've done this before don't remember what it comes to but yep. any currency you want you can buy it from the website bit.ly mm-hmm. forward slash wcmtfw no code required none of that nonsense just put in that url click it in the show notes and you can be taken directly to a massive discount on the best cricket magazine mm-hmm. in the world
1: wisdom cricket monthly through a portal into a cricketing wonderland wisdom cricket monthly you have a read Good, guys. This is Jimmy Nishim, and You're listening to the Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lehman. I was really interested in the the tone of the book because it, it it's not the book that you you'd expect it to be necessarily. You know, initially you hear a memoir by John, so it's probably about that life. Then there's the concept that it's from the point of view of Roy. At which point, you know, I was more expecting it to be to be hitting the comedy hammer. Hard, But it's a very contemplative, sort of almost quiet kind of book. I, I thought it was a lovely read. But it's it feels like it's a love letter to to the town, to Lithgow, and it's a, a love letter to adolescents and that sort of trying to understand how boys and men work in, in that period where they're shifting from one to another. It's quite a gentle story. So did, did you know that you wanted to write that kind of story rather than what might have been the more obvious thing that was expected? Uh, well,
4: there were there were no expectations really, mm. Jeff. No, nobody said uh, you know write something funny, mm. so I, I was left completely to my own devices. And I, I guess uh, being in lockdown as we were last year, mm. that there was a sense of some sort of melancholy, I suppose, and whether mm. uh, uh, that sort of sort of filtered through into it or not. But I I, I found that uh, once I got going, that this was the mood that seeing the best way to do it uh, mm. to focus in on the the, uh, the the issues of the time and the issues of the time were for us we were part of a large sort of Catholic mm. sect in a way so and I'd, I'd forgotten how strong that sectarian influence was how how isolated we sort of were and how wary we were of mm. uh, of 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 publics because they as you well know back then uh, they certainly had no morality <laughs> um, um, none whatsoever so uh, so there was that and there was also the the change that was happening in the role of women uh, so it was incredibly difficult for young mothers uh, there was very little protection around mm. girls were getting pregnant at a very young age and left to deal with the consequences largely mm. to themselves they had to solve the problem themselves there wasn't much support given to them in fact there was opprobrium mm. uh, directed to, towards them so i decided that roy's mum would have that same challenge the, yeah. the challenge that i witnessed back then um uh, in, in other families. Mm. But it was nice having Roy being able to just zoom in and out of anyone's house uh, and and uh, explore the issues of of uh, family uh, a, a, as it was at the time. So in terms of the, the tone, the tone sort of created itself. As I kept going, I, I thought, well, well, you know, this is what it is. It's a love letter, and I guess that's true that we did feel, given our isolation, our isolation gave us a, a, um, well, the fact that here we are a bunch of people Mm. who met when we were four who still communicate with each Mm. other. One of the brothers, Brother Michael, uh, Mm. he's still alive, I still communicate with him. He left the order many years ago and now he's a grandfather. But uh, we we still stay in touch. Um, so so, the isolation gave us a, 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 a it was the glue of connection that mm. we still have, and that that's something unusual, I think, Jeff.
1: Yeah. yeah, well, it was it was unusual, I suppose, as a reader that it. The the book works against cliche. It doesn't it doesn't go with stereotype because the even the way it's set up in the sort of press release is is to kind of put John Doyle as the crawler, as the one who's, it seems like he's looked down on by Roy, but that's not the case in the book. Roy's quite a kind-hearted narrator. And I think that Doyle is presented very, with a kindness, He's, he's presented very sympathetically, that Doyle has a kind of equanimity ahead of his years. He has wisdom, almost. He's got this knowledge, he's He's got the the ability to kind of uh, control his chaotic households to, to the extent that he can, and he's presented as someone admirable. It, it wasn't. I, I would have expected, and somebody using a, a separate device to examine themselves would would use that as a way to be critical and, and to deprecate themselves. But You don't do that. You you're relatively kind to your younger self.
4: Uh, well, I I try to be I try to be objective, Jeff. Mm. I mean, living in the sort of maelstrom that uh, that uh, the family often was because mm. of, for obvious reasons, to us in there, it was just normal. Mm. So it took the eyes of a, an outsider, Roy, in this instance, mm. to to describe just how unusual mm. it was to have a very strange person in the house who was willfully... Mm. Self-destructive, so so that really did have a, a, a massive impact on mm. uh, on all of us, really, especially my younger sister. I guess uh, I think it was probably harder for her than anyone because mm. she had to share a room. That's her story, you know. Mm. I had to, you know, spend a fair bit of time in the car and out and about.
0: Mm. And, and
4: that was the that was the that was the thing about that time, Jeff. That it was not unusual for. Kids of that age, fifteen, mm. to leave the house in the morning, and not be expected to be seen until after dark. Mm. So the, you're just left to your own devices. Unimaginable now, <laughs> uh, where, where you know <laughs> parents have to have four-wheel drives to deliver their kids. Uh, so it just seems
1: insane because you know kids can look after themselves. They can there's a difference between looking after yourself and having to look after others with you know the way the the kids in that family have to have to look out for each other in that way and and it feels like that's really at the heart of the book is doyle trying to cope with the with with seeing his sister in pain and you've you've got all of these yeah. te- teenagers who are who are rushing towards adulthood and, and experiencing all the joys and fear of that, but you've got this other teenager who's locked inside herself and can't be part of that, can't experience that, and, and yeah. you know, Doyle is furious about that, the 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 sort of contretemps with God with... Oh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. I mean,
4: that, that was always a fucking issue because our family was so attached mm. to believing every word that came from the church and that just mm. you know, just drove me drove me nuts in the same way it drove me nuts that they continued to uh, to vote for the party that would mm. send my brother and nearly me to vietnam mm. and at the same time tried to get him and me out of it by <laughs> you know dev- devising a plan where yeah. You know she mum would talk to dr leslie to bloody look at my brother's feet and he mm. could argue that oh yes he, he could never wear a, a military boot or march or anything like well this mm. is just bullshit. but there was this these inconsistencies and uh mm. oh, you know i played paid lip service to the sacraments you know i'd take myself off to confession but as roy pointed out while i was confessing i just had these doubts that it was bullshit while I was doing it. It was just, Mm. anyway, it was just one of those things. The cynicism I I was able to share with Mm. a a couple of the brothers
1: at the school who were equally cynical, really. Anyway. To some extent, is this, like how much was this story about... um Wanting to put your your sister's experience into into words and put that in put that before people, and at least at least have her pain and her difficulty be seen by others. To to have it registered
4: and to have the uh, and and it was not terribly uncommon. Parents, families who had what they called subnormal, hmm. it isolated you. There were very few resources. Um, Almost none. My sister wasn't diagnosed until she was 11. Mm. That was because up until that point, no one knew what was wrong with her. Mm. It uh, took a, a doctor called Vern Barnett, who had an autistic daughter, who took himself off to America to try and find out what was wrong with her. Mm. came back with that diagnosis and Dr Leslie in Lithgow advised my mum and dad to take Jen to see him mm. And she, when she was 11 and that's when she was diagnosed and that's when the word first came into the house, the word autism. But by then the boat of early intervention had well and truly sailed mm. uh, you need early intervention at the age of three or four. And if that doesn't happen, then the the child is essentially cast adrift and will never, well, usually never, be mm. able to make sense of the world, depending on, it's, it's a spectrum as you know, yeah. uh, depending on the degree of autism. So, so yes, that, that, that it was in part that to explain what it was like. It, mm in a way that it's a sort of, yes, it was a
1: a Dickensian circumstance, really. They kind of um, isolate them from everybody else so that, you know, the rest of us don't have to be bothered by the people who are different, that kind of thing. As far as the the voice of Roy that you're talking about and the character of Roy, I found this really interesting because, like I mentioned earlier, Roy in the book is, he's very sweet, he's quite, he's kind-hearted, he's not, He's not He's not cocky because of his sporting gifts or or whatever it is. How does he progress into Roy from television years later, who's who's full of confidence, who's full of jokes because this Roy isn't making himself at the center of the room. He doesn't look for the spotlight, he's not the class clown. he's you know he, he's very much kind of observing everybody else and and staying on the fringes. How does he turn into the Roy that you came to know later? uh
4: well i think that would have come with uh that would come with confidence and if i was to uh embark on you know mm. uh, volume 2 we'd see him um uh, the culture of rugby league is nothing like the culture of afl no uh the culture of rugby league is that uh it eschews cleverness mm. it eschews smart arsery it eschews education.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: So, if uh, a player in responding to a question from a journalist uses words that are more than a grunt, mm-hmm. he'll be pilloried by his teammates. Teams would often have a competition as to who could sound the dumbest in responding to journalists' questions. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the AFL, it's quite common to have professionals, people who might have mm. careers in, you know, there might be a chemist like John Worsfold or they might be, right. you know what I mean? we just mm. never happened in, in rugby league, or very, very rarely. Mm. Um, so Roy would have uh, got into that sort of culture uh, when he went on to uh, to join uh, the St George rugby league team. Mm. And uh, it, I I can see him very easily uh, because he's probably a little bit smarter than most of them, would have been able to uh, grow and become the sort of more boisterous figure. Mm. I think uh, by the time he was probably about 20, he would have Mm -hmm. uh, achieved that sort of boisterousness. I I don't Uh, think there's an inconsistency. There,
1: Jeff, what you're yeah. saying? No, I'm, uh, I'm interested about the um, the yes. the progression, you know, because he's yes, of course. Yeah, that's that's not where he starts out, um, and because he's quite restrained, he's able to make these observations that are telling, especially about Catholicism and the the, the consistent sort of guilt and fear that are heaped onto everybody, that revolutionary idea in one of the last chapters that there are people who are just allowed to be who they are, who are not Catholic, who don't have to doubt themselves all the time. And the Catholics, you know, the the church hasn't come into the modern age looking very good. Um, So, I mean, how much of this was nostalgia and how much of it was therapy that you've had to get out how you really felt about Catholicism as an institution? Uh
4: Uh, yeah, a, 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 a little bit of both. Um, I, I do, I do look back on those years, genuinely with rose-colored glasses. I mm. do, because there was there, there was something. The brothers, mm. uh, honestly, they did their level best to to educate us. They did, they did do their level best. It's just that they had this terrible, terrible baggage that uh, that they carried with them so so I, I I feel not sorry
1: for them but i but I'm sympathetic mm. towards them it's um interesting you you mentioned the sectarianism and you know, like you're setting this in 67 I, I was born in 80, 82 it's only 15 years later it it seems astonishing that that sectarianism has it's it's all but gone you wouldn't you wouldn't know these days if someone's a Catholic or a Protestant or whatever it is is it is it a relief or is it is it confusing that it's vanished so quickly? Like it... oh
4: look, look 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 it has vanished and it is a great relief, Jeff, A great relief. Mm. But you do get echoes of it. Mm. With the uh, Police Commissioner of New South Wales. Yeah. You get an uh, it alternates between a, mas- a mason and a catholic. Right. And it's still going on. So
1: the the echo is still there. Yeah. Astonishing to imagine like a subterranean fungus is still still going on under the surface yeah
4: yeah yeah
1: yeah i'm interested in the the alter ego you know the alter ego probably makes it easier to write about yourself i imagine but the relationship between the two of them in the book there's you know there's the dream that roy is having about doyle batting there's, there's this sense of of like he cares he cares about. Doyle, there's a genuine affection between them, um, and there's that line quite late in the book where, where Roy says, "I think that he needs me." Did you need Roy Slaven? Did you need him earlier? Do you still need him now? What's that relationship like? Uh, okay, Roy has become
4: a, a, an almost necessary mask, hmm. Jeff. In. Uh... Uh, an hour and a half's time, Mm. I'll put the mask on and Roy will be there uh, uh, again for Mm. half an hour doing a daily program for the ABC. Wearing the mask of Roy enables me and gives me the confidence to be able to express uh, views and be Mm. as critical um, as I possibly can be, within the bounds of the law, of course, Mm. with impunity in a way that me as myself couldn't possibly do, I mm. couldn't do it. So, so uh,
1: it's 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 um, um, a mask of courage that Roy gives me. And there is that sense in the book that uh, that Roy's belief in Doyle that matters to Doyle. That you know, yes. Doyle is very aware of that. That's right. Yeah, mm. very much so. Without doubt.
4: Hi, I'm Ian Chapel. You're listening to the Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon.
1: This is the Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Thank you to John Doyle for coming on the show. Although he didn't know he was coming on the show, he later on said it would be fine <laughs> to be on the show. So, uh, look, that was that was just me. That was that was the sort of I don't know. It's like the the, the solo projects of um, <laughs> I'm, I probably can't say John Lennon. Maybe Julian Lennon, but. Yeah, you know, sometimes you've got to do a little bit of stuff outside the band, that's all.
2: Yeah, so had I known you were going to uh, talk to John Doyle, I definitely, definitely would have gotten you to ask about the Bodyline miniseries from 1984, Mm. which I wrote... I think I wrote a four thousand word university essay about. Back then. I was in some. You did. I was in some third year film class at Monash. I don't mm-hmm. know how they let me do this. I, yeah. I did my major essay on Bodyline, which was a six part series. I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and John Doyle plays Gubby Allen, the quizzling traitor, as Daniel Norcross would call him, of course, because mm-hmm. Gabby Allen was the the man who refused to bowl the Bodyline tactic when when uh, when yes. Jardine clapped his hands. They didn't run around into the ring on the leg side for uh, for Gubby Allen because he resisted nope. that urge and left it to the others. But um, he was no less effective. Bowled than outside off—that's
1: what Gubby did. Just bowled
2: outside. Bowled outside off. off. So uh, yeah, much yeah. to the frustration of, of Norcross, who still to this day has a portrait of Douglas Jardine sitting above his sofa. So yes, it doesn't. It isn't in keeping with his his uh, his value set, shall we say, when it comes to Ashes cricket. But uh, <laughs> yes, John Doyle uh, was in that alongside, of course, Hugo Weaving playing uh, playing mm. Jardine and, and Gary Sweet playing Brad. But uh, yeah, I, I, at some point God, we can we can
1: ask. It's so bad. It's not though. I, I, it's not. It's it not really bad. Is. I
2: mean, the cricket scenes are bad.
1: I watched it. I watched it with I don't know two years ago, and it is. It is a very very bad. <bit>. Stop it. Don't
2: ruin, my, uh, don't ruin my childhood. Anyway. Your
1: childhood? You, well, not, you, you know, must have
2: been like 25
1: no, when no, no, you wrote no, no, this
2: essay. No. I, I watched it as a kid. I had the tapes when I was a kid right. and, then, and then later yeah. wrote about it as a, you know, I wouldn't call myself an adult at age 21, but sort of trending towards no. being something resembling an adult at that stage. I remember there was um, – Yeah. when doing the research It's like for the that,
1: larval stage of a human being. Yeah.
2: yeah no, you're, not, you're not a grown-up when you're 21. There was a uh, – Tiger O'Reilly was the Sydney Morning Herald's cricket correspondent at that stage mm-hmm. in 84 – And he wrote a review of it. And of course, you know, he was there, so he was fairly well placed to write a review. And he was scathing about the way they depicted a number of scenes in the film, not least Bradman Mm -hmm. having a few beers with the lads, because of course Bradman was a notorious teetotaler. And, and, you know, the way they tried to to manage that through. So, you know, and he was fairly generous to Bradman in that description. Um, It's not as though it was a hit job, but. There was still a sort of healthy animosity between those two deep into their lives.
1: Yeah, and like I mean, the idea of casting Bradman as a guy who you know did a bunch of abseiling on Police Rescue and was <laughs> was a was a TV week heartthrob that that various teenagers had on on the back of their bedroom doors. You know, yeah, th- real Bradman areas. The the guy with a voice like this who was about five foot two. <laughs> like, yeah, he made a shitload of runs, but uh, mm. Gary Sweet wouldn't have picked Frank Ward. I will tell you what, Gary Sweet would have played it straight. Clary Grimmett all the way I think that takes us to the end of the show so this has been the final word with G Lemon and A Collins thank you first and foremost to everyone who is on Patreon and subscribes to the show because that means that we can keep making it it is a miraculous thing that you do that lets us do this a couple of times a week Um, we'll be back on the weekend for story time the show is uh, distributed on the bad producer Podcast Network and edited by Dave Collins.
2: I just want to say that if you if you have found it hard to get into the Discord channel, just send Jeff or me a message and we can send you a different link. That for whatever reason, some people have struggled to to draw that link together from patrons. So, yeah, all you need to do is contact one of us and, and we'll send you a different link to let you in there. Where there are currently, Jeff, 150 roughly of our community who are talking amongst themselves. Occasionally we drop in to say hello and it's okay that we don't. There was nearly a final word catch up at the Trent Bridge test last week. It didn't quite come off because some plans changed and some rain hit, but um, it won't be long before we start doing these meetups on a regular basis and they're all kind of gravitating around the Discord channel. So, once you've uh, sent in a nerd pledge on Patreon, uh, that is your domain as well.
1: Also wonderful to hear that aside from the Gary Sobers waiting area at Trent Bridge, um, they've now named a temporary bar after him, so you can go to the Sobers bar. How's that? <laughs> How's that for a um, – but it's also a temporary bar in the indoor cricket nets, so it's still just as shit-ass as the waiting area. It's <laughs> <laughs> a way to, way to celebrate the career of, of one of the greats. Um, I'm, sh- I'm sure I'm sure he's very touched, Sir G. The show is sponsored by Brick Lane, the Brick Lane Brewing Community. Oh, um, yeah. If you- if, if you enjoy a beer, um, try one of theirs. They're helping us. It's a very nice thing they do. And Wisdom Cricket Monthly, don't forget, you can get a sweet subscription for just about half price if you click the link in our show notes. Other than that, uh, we'll be back on the weekend with story time. We'll be back before then with the daily show on the Test match, the, the 10, 15-minute shows that we do at the end of each uh, day's play in this England India Test series. That's it from us. Signing out. See you next time.
0: Bye. I had to go.